Well, let's go back to uh, Luke chapter number one. As I said, it's uh, it's going to be focused on this uh, Magnificat of Mary's. So we can say this is a Merry Christmas, right? We're going to have a lot of Mary here. Uh, each that was bad. <laughs> Sorry. We're going to go each uh, each service we have. We're going to keep adding as we go through this. Uh, Section verse 46 through verse number 55. And tonight we're going to focus on verse 47. In verse 46 we have the theme of the entire, um, I don't know, song you want to call it? A psalm, a declaration. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. In verse 47, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Heavenly Father, again we come before you tonight uh, thankful for this day. Your blessings have been with us all day long. And we thank you, Lord, for it. Uh, as we go into your word, Ooh, that's a blessing too. That we can see these things before our eyes. That we can ponder them in our hearts and in our minds. That we can find application here that uh, will do us some good. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of, of our calling. Help us to trust you more. Encourage us along the way. And uh, make us uh, an encouragement to others. May this passage that we look at here tonight accomplish your will in our lives tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I like the way this is, is set up here with... If there were, if this was music, and we actually had the uh, um, dynamics written on there, this, this probably the first line would be uh, a very high-sounding, strong-sounding forte type of a phrase, and the second phrase that follows it in verse 47 reduces that. It, it's kind of an interesting thing, and I'm only basing that on the the style of the verb that I was looking at here. The the first one is is strong and 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 exceedingly great. My soul exalts the Lord, and then there seems to be even in the verb tense a quietness. In the second one, it, it's kind of interesting to look at it because what I was looking for when I started studying this passage wasn't there at all because I was thinking it was going to be one of those great big, you know, huge statements in in what it was and and. Uh, it was more a quiet statement. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Let me explain it to you as I go here. Um, this morning as I opened up my uh, email just to see what was out there, uh, a friend of mine had sent an email that his father had just passed away. And uh, for the last 15 years or so, I, I've known him, and uh, I know that he's been witnessing to his father for for all this time and probably many, many more years before that. The past two weeks he sat by his bedside, he uh, read him scripture, he sang hymns to him and sang choruses to him, he uh, presented the gospel to him. I don't know, even know how many times in his life he had done that too. And after his father passed away, he wrote in this email this morning that he does not have the assurance that uh, his father had accepted the Lord. 
he, he just didn't have that assurance at all. And so often in these situations, our statements are, well, we have to wait to heaven till heaven till find out, to find out. That's kind of a hard thing sometimes just to say it that way. We have to wait till heaven to find out. So I, I was thinking about that this morning, and, and I thought maybe here would be a simple question we could ask as we begin here tonight. Will your loved ones have to wait until heaven to find out whether or not you know the Lord? Will they have to wait to heaven to find out? Over the years, I've performed 50 funerals. I think I'm at number 50 now. 50 funerals. I, on average, that's two a year. Although I remember once, I did four in one week. That was a tough time. They weren't related. It wasn't an accident or anything like that. It was just one of those amazing times where every time the phone rang, you picked it up and you say, Oh, no. And there were four in one week. But I recall how often that statement my friend made, we will have to wait until heaven to find out how many times that applied in the funerals that I had to do. Folks that I knew them, but I did not know. I did not have that assurance either that they were ones that truly knew the Lord. And that kind of troubles me. It troubles you too, doesn't it, to think that. In high school, I was Mr. Incognito Christian. It was intentional. I didn't want anyone to know that I was a believer. Went to a public school, and I was, I was afraid of being teased. I was afraid of being questioned. Um, I thought it was just sufficient just to keep quiet about it. Uh, my greatest worry was that uh, I didn't know what to say if somebody asked me about my faith. That was one of my big concerns, and, and I didn't know how to defend it at the time. Uh, I, I think Nicodemus was my nickname, if I had one. Uh, a secret disciple. I was satisfied with this phrase, my beliefs are personal. And that's the way I went about it, and I justified it. They're personal beliefs. What you believe is personal. What I believe is personal, and I, I, I concealed my faith so no one can see it. If I had died in my teens, I think they would have had to say that phrase. We have to wait till heaven to find out. I'm very sure that that's what they would have had to say. So here's Mary's statement before us, verse 47 and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior Mary was known to be a humble person wasn't she? If you go over and examine her life uh, we especially see in this next verse, verse 48 when we get to it next Sunday he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Outside of the Christmas story, we really don't see Mary a great deal in the Gospels. I was scanning through passages trying to, to put her story together in some sort of a biography so we get the idea of how many times we uh, see her pop up on the screen. She exerted herself once in John chapter 2 at a wedding. 
if you'll remember, uh, she put Jesus in charge of the fact that there was no more wine. And it, even really, really reading it in John chapter 2, it seems first impression that Jesus rebuked her. When he said, woman, what does that have to do with us? Another time, Jesus had a full day of teaching, um, contending with the Pharisees. The, the passage is really rich with, with uh, the contention, with the, the strife between these two, with words and such. And a demon-possessed man had just been healed. And the Pharisees are there saying, when are you going to show us a sign? That's like an, open your eyes. He's standing right in front of you. But they were asking for a sign after he just healed a demonic man. Now, I'm sure that they didn't go around doing that. That should have been a miraculous thing in front of their eyes. But nevertheless, they were asking for him to perform a sign. And, and during this whole conversation and the teaching revolving around it, outside of this very crowded room, somebody says, uh, your mother and your brothers are out there and they want to see you. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Remember that passage? It must be significant. Three of the Gospels bring it up. I thought, hmm. Someday we might have to go through that one and figure out what was going on there too. If you back up in time a little bit, at the age of 12, remember the episode? Jesus was there during the, the time of the Passover, I believe it was, and Joseph and Mary and the gang all took off back home to Nazareth and got a little ways down the road and realized he wasn't there. And they turned around and they came back and they found him there in the temple, listening and teaching even, talking to the uh, leaders there. And Mary is the one who speaks up. And Mary says, why did you do this to us? I thought, that's an interesting phrase. That certainly was a parent phrase. Why did you do this to us? And Jesus answered her, Did you not know that I have to be in my Father's house? And that left her pondering too, didn't it? Luke actually says this, Concerning Joseph and Mary, they did not understand that statement. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. But for the most part, the the interchange between Mary and Jesus goes unwritten in the gospel. We those are about the episodes I could give you that is recorded. The rest of the time we find her quietly watching, pondering, as she's known to have done, uh his teaching and miracles, and, and I have a feeling she just followed him around where he went. She probably was there and witnessed all these events that he had done for scattered throughout his life were the episodes I just read to you, or mentioned anyway. And when he is arrested and he's crucified, who's there? Mary. How much time did she have to plan to get from Nazareth down there? That was an overnight deal, right? She was there. And I have a feeling that she probably followed behind as he went from place to place. We know she was there standing at the cross. We find her again, and the last reference to her, in Acts chapter 1. 
in that uh, upper room, the disciples had gathered again together for prayer. And guess who was there praying with them? It says, Mary was there. That was right after Jesus ascended up into heaven. Now, with that information, and I really don't re- intend to read into these things and come up with some incredibly new thought or something. I, I wouldn't want to do that anyway. But I desired to have a simple snapshot of Mary. Just a, a concept of, of how she was. And I found it very interesting. Whenever she is described in the Bible, it's always Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not Mary, the mother of God. There are those who hold to that. Mary, the mother of God. Oh, he was God long before he took on flesh. (laughs) He's always been God. But it says, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a chosen instrument by the Lord to... to, uh, for God to take on flesh, the mother of Jesus. She was never intended to be what we call a mediator, either. And there are those who teach that she she plays an important role in our prayers and in our needs because she's a go-between between man and Jesus, as if he needs convinced, let's send his mother. And uh, she's the one who stands in there and listens and hears prayers and and deals with forgiveness issues and such like that. When scripture says there is but one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. There is no other mediator. And yet that's what other theologies have brought us to. She is called to be a mother. And that's what she was. In all those scenes, I could go back to it and say, yep, that was like a mother. That was like a mother. That was like a mother. You could see those things uh, very clearly. I do, anyway. And I think that maybe, because of her humility, you might have thought that her desire was just to be the average mother. Don't put me out in the forefront. Don't, don't put a parade around me. I just want to be a mother, just quietly and faithfully doing my job, raising my children, and she had many. She had questions. She pondered. I don't believe that uh, we have to wait until we get to heaven to find out about her faith, though. That's why I like this verse. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Like I told you when I started here, when I saw that phrase, I was looking for something really significant, a, a powerful verb tense, maybe, or, or some word that pops off the page and says, boy, this is unique and, and uh, spectacular. I was looking for something that I thought would really be impressive, something particular, something peculiar, perhaps, uh, of the passage. But it's just a simple statement. The verbs are, are not anything you know, magnificent in the nature of the way it's written. It's just a statement. She says, my, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So I thought, well, maybe it's the rejoice word. I've got to explore that a little bit, because I, I love looking at words and trying to figure out what they have to do with this. 
the word uh, rejoice is just another form of exulting, uh, being glad. Uh, we use the word rejoice here. There is the element of jumping for joy in it. But it's not like the three kings <laughs> we see in Matthew. It's a little bit more toned down. Uh, but in that, she's glad. She's rejoicing. The, the word is used to, to leap on occasion. It's also used in the idea of water, gushing out of something. So when, when I thought, how, how is this your word used? There's 11 instances of this particular word in the New Testament. And I scanned through them. And this is what I found very interesting here. Matthew chapter 5 uses this word. In Matthew 5, it uses it right at the end of the Beatitudes when he tells his disciples to rejoice because they've been persecuted for his namesake. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting, just an interesting word used right there. To rejoice because you're persecuted for your faith, because you wear the name of Jesus. That's Matthew 5, 12. Luke records it once in chapter 10, verse 21. And that was on the heels of, of the 70 disciples. Remember Jesus sent them out and to go and, and preach and, and teach and things of that nature, cast out demons and things of that. And then they came back and reported to him. And they were all excited because, wow, even the demons obeyed us and all these other things. And Jesus rejoiced with this word when he heard the report said, well, that's a curious concept. Just right there, she, the, Abraham, it was said of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. Jesus mentioned it that way in Abraham's life. Uh, another time, the Philippian jailer, after the earthquake and after he appealed to Paul and said, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And, and the whole transaction there was accomplished at the jail. The jailer, if you remember, took him home. And when he took him home, he wanted him to, to speak to his family too about faith. And all the while he's cleaning him up and bandaging him up and giving him something to eat and so on. But in that, that phrase was used again. The Philippian jailer is the one who was rejoicing with his whole family about the faith that they now had. And I thought that was a, a precious little picture too. But this is where the change started. Going back to Matthew, where it spoke of a uh, joy that comes in the midst of persecution, we see it three times in Peter's letter. And I figured it's Sunday night, i got to mention Peter at least once, right? Three times in Peter's letter, and all three in reference to persecution. Three times in reference to persecution. Chapter 1, he mentions it twice. Chapter number he mentions that you share the sufferings of Christ and to rejoice and then the final time I found it was in Revelation chapter 19 in verse number 7 where it talked about now has come the marriage of the Lamb and guess what everyone's doing rejoicing same word and I said okay that's an interesting combination of thoughts there this kind of joy or this kind of rejoicing 
is not attached to having a good day. It's not attached to a large check in the mail. It's many times, matter of fact, the majority of times in Scripture, it's attached to a persecution or a suffering. But most of the time, it's attached to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I thought that was curious. They they see who he is. They're, they're wearing his name. They're married to the Lamb. Now, some suggest that uh, Mary's joy was that she was lifted out of obscurity. And I think, well, that's kind of a funny thing to say, because I don't think she wanted to be lifted out of obscurity. <laughs> it's funny to... Uh, to somehow bring honor in the world's eye to somebody. How do you do that? Well, make them pregnant before they're married, right? The world really looks highly on that, don't they? At least they used to have problems with it. She could face censure by her family, thrown out. Her neighbors, thrown out. Her relationship with Joseph, what was he starting to do? Set his mind to file the papers, right? He was going to put her away silently. The picture that Mary really had to look forward to in the misunderstanding of the population around her would be very much like the Samaritan woman coming to the well at a time where no other women would be there. Because she came so she would not get ridiculed or ignored or treated poorly. See, being chosen, as Mary was chosen, it was not for Mary's deliverance. It didn't set her free from something down here socially. It didn't set her free from something down here in, in their relationships with other people. And I thought that was kind of interesting how one commentary just kind of harped on the whole idea that, wow, this was going to elevate her in a lot of ways. And I'm thinking, I don't think it really felt that way. Not to her. That was the salvation he thought she was declaring here. I think the joy that we read of here is simply the fact that she rejoiced that God was her Savior. As simple as that is, to have a Savior, you have to have a need to be saved. You don't deliver somebody who does not need delivered, do you? You, you don't uh, save someone who doesn't need to be saved. It would look a little silly for the lifeguard to stand by the sea and, and look out into the water and not deal with those drowning, but help those on the beach towels. Say, well, that's, that's not the picture of saved, is it? To help somebody who doesn't need help? We always uh, enjoyed this story that uh, I might have told you before. My dad has always been the kind of guy who wanted to help people. They looked like they were having trouble. He jumped right in every time to help them. And, and um, he had this uh, snowplow truck. Uh, 
1959 Jeep, big flat nose thing. It was huge. Uh, and he would drive that thing to work with the plow on the front. In Indiana, we needed that a lot. And um, when he came up to an intersection one day, there was a car sitting in front of him in the intersection, and, and uh, it wasn't moving. And the lady was motioning for him. And he thought this meant, push me. But this meant, go around me. Well, he got up behind her and pushed her right through the intersection with that big old truck. And she was not very happy. She didn't need saved. <laughs> but he moved it anyway. And I always thought, what a neat little story that is. Because that's my picture when I think of salvation. You don't deliver somebody who doesn't need delivered. When Mary calls him, calls God my Savior, that says an awful lot about what Mary thinks. What does she need? Saved. That's what saviors are for. That's what saviors are for. See, with rescue comes a relief, does it not? There's a relief behind the idea. There's joy in being uh, rescued, to, to be back to living, to be given a second chance where at first you thought you had none. Being pulled out of danger. What, what means so much to us in our salvation? Is it not the beauty of being forgiven? You like that, don't you? Don't you like the concept of life after death? We're given that too. A complete change from darkness to light? I kept... I guess you all would understand this to some degree, but how beautiful it was to have the electricity come back on. Light is a precious thing. Power is a precious thing. The, the relief. And you felt it too, didn't you? Pops on and there's relief all of a sudden. You rest a little bit. You say, oh, that feels good. What does it mean to us to be saved? To rejoice in God my Savior. It's a simple phrase and commentators wrestle with these words all the time and I've, I have to read them to try to get a sense of what they're thinking. God my Savior. What would be Mary's view of such a thing? After all, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. The, the doctrine of the apostles hasn't been taught yet. But I think she would have understand the concept of darkness. Matter of fact, I'll read to you this passage. You could follow along. It's in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of my other favorite Christmas sections to uh, study, but we won't get that chance this year. But in Isaiah chapter 9, it starts in a very ominous way, very gloomy way. I'm even using the word gloom because it's there. He says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of the burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. I love that. How that just, just appears. We read that and we say, well, that sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Picture that scene. Galilee, Naphtali, Zebulon, those, if you trace them on your map, they're all right up there around the Sea of Galilee, in that territory there. And he talks about them being in gloom and in darkness and living as such. And it really was that way. They were part of the northern tribe. And the northern tribes of Israel are the first ones to have walked away from the Lord by setting up a false worship in the tribes of Dan and such like that. Their kings were all evil men who led them astray. As a result, they were quick to go to idolatry. They were quick to go into captivity. They were taken away by the Assyrians. That's about the days of Isaiah. As he's writing, he could probably look up north and say they're missing they used to be there. They're gone now. Where are they? They're living in darkness. They're living in gloom. There's no hope. The, the, the land has been devastated. The people have been scattered. You, you look about and you say, What happened to Galilee? What happened to that region? We would say in, in some terms, It's been blighted. It's just dark, gloomy, good-for-nothing land. And Isaiah starts to write. He says, and those people living in that darkness, the light will come on. The light will shine. And notice the change of their, if you call it their mood, where they once lived in gloom. All of a sudden the word glad and rejoicing starts to pop up on the page, doesn't it? And when you get down to verse number 6, it tells you why. Who's come? Yes, Jesus is there. Where, where was Joseph and Mary living? Nazareth of Galilee. And I think of this picture when I think God my Savior. She lived in a land that needed to be saved. Her forefathers needed to be saved. Her grandparents all the way up the line needed to be saved. They lived in gloom. They lived in darkness. And the hope of Israel had been like a candle that's just slowly, slowly fading. Failing. 
and that dream of the women that they would be the ones that chosen and appointed to bring the Messiah the hopes of all the prophecies and such all of a sudden Mary says it's right here I've seen it I've held him these words that Mary is expressing here I rejoice in God my Savior that whole nation needed a Savior but Mary needed a Savior too Mary needed one she made that very personal didn't she she didn't say our Savior she said my Savior for she too was one who walked in doom and darkness and, and misery in that regard you say well how did she know how did she know that this child was the one that, that she would rejoice in well, back in Luke, chapter number 1, while we're still there, back in that verse 26 and that whole passage there, the angel appeared to her, recall? And when the angel talked to her, he said in verse 31, Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, a good Hebrew would have heard that name. That name in Hebrew is Joshua. You know what it means? The Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. She would have heard that name. And, and God says, through the angel says, name him that. And then you say, okay, what else? He will be great. He will be the called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. You say, well, where's the salvation in that? It's, it's his kingdom that's magnified. Verse 35. He says, the most high will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy child will be called the Son of God. And this is the information she had. But somewhere down the road, her and Joseph no doubt had a conversation Joseph had a visit too didn't he and that angel came to Joseph and said and you shall call his name Jesus why for he will save his people from their sins Joseph got the information of salvation. She got the picture that he is God. And what a perfect combination. God is my Savior. Put it together. And she understood. God is my Savior. Here's what's really interesting about this. Because her spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's an interesting little preposition there. We call it epi in the Greek. Epi has many connotations to it. Uh, basically, the idea of resting on something. That's the word epi. It's like your epidermis, I think, rests on the outside, doesn't it? I hope. That's what I always count on. All right? Because the dermis is on the inside, isn't it? Something like that. It's supposed to be. Epi sits on the outside. Rest upon something. Rest upon something is a picture here. But here's what's also interesting. In this particular uh, construction, it is the basis of something, too. It's what you rest upon. It's a basis. It's a foundation. And what she is saying here is, my joy, rest upon this foundation. 
God is my Savior. I think that is powerful. You know, that's such a simple phrase. But it's a perfect phrase, isn't it? Our faith, what does it rest on? My faith has found a resting place. We've sung the song before, haven't we? It's not in devices, it's not in creeds. What is it in? It's in Jesus Christ. That's where it rests. That's where it sits. This is what Mary is saying. I, I, I have a feeling that we can pull up Psalm 103 right here and get the, the expression from her heart. It's so similar to what she's saying. And I'm just going to read it to you. One of my favorite psalms here. Psalm 103. Listen to these words in reference to My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Psalm 103 starts, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. What are they? He has pardoned your iniquities, healed your diseases, redeemed your life from the pit, crowned you with loving kindness and compassion, satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord has performed righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses and the acts, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and, and abounding in loving kindness. And He will not always strive with us nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. Just as the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And it places, in its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you... All you works of His, in all places of His dominion, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Such a beautiful psalm. But what's the combination in this psalm? God, holy, sovereign, mighty, compassionate, forgiving, loving. Aren't those beautiful to put together? That's Mary's statement. I rejoice in God, my Savior. What a precious combination that is. Religions in our world today, 
They set up these gods that they worship because they're afraid of them. They have gods of terror, gods of vindication, gods of judgment, gods of, of, of horror, gods that are angry and they're trying to appease them. We have a God who forgives. We have a God who sent His Son, who died on a cross for us. We have a God who loves us. A God who wants us to have fellowship with Him. A God who has called us to Himself. A God who lets us call us ourselves His children. A God who will live forever with us. Is that a cause for rejoicing or what? That's what He says. Or she says, rejoice. This is what I do. I rejoice in God my Savior. You could say that with the softest voice. You could shout it from the mountaintops. But it all starts here, doesn't it? Do you uh, doubt her testimony? You just heard it. Just saw it. As I stated, I, I believe we can conclude that Mary is not somebody we have to worry about whether or not she will be there in heaven someday. So I ask it one more time before we quit here. Are we the kind of people that will leave others unsure that we know the Lord? Are we going to be those kind of people where they're going to wonder and say, well, we'll just have to wait till heaven to know? Or are we going to be the kind that rejoices in God our Savior? There's a difference. I like what I'm seeing in this passage. This is a dear passage. We've got more to do. So for this, let's, let's rest in this tonight, throughout this week. Uh, recall that we have a great God, and He too is our Savior. And we have cause to rejoice, don't we? Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for what You have done for us. We are but dust. Your Word is true. Our lives are short. In so many ways, we, we live in, in a very unworthy manner. For we are those who have lived in darkness. We, have tho- we are those who lived in gloom. We live in a land that is like that today. A land where they desperately need to see the light. And for those who have come to know you, Lord, we have seen the light. And we rejoice in that. You have made the difference. You are our Savior. And we rejoice in that tonight. Thank you for what you've done. Perhaps throughout this week uh, we might be able to show that light. Maybe there are those around us that we will encounter in one place or another that desperately needs to see this light. And may they not be left wondering our relationship with you. May it be that visible, Lord, in our rejoicing. Even if it's a quiet rejoicing, may it be significant enough that they see there's a difference. We know God. And we rejoice 
in what he has done. Thank you, Lord, for this great passage. Challenge us with it, I pray. Help us to recall it. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.